Good morning. Well, some of you sounded pretty cheery there. That's pretty good news. This is lesson 24 in our series in the book of Hebrews. And I'm raising the question whether or not there can or should be second class saints. It reminds me of my school days, and I must confess that I was a minimalist in the sense that I got whatever grades my father set as the bare minimum. There were other better things I thought to do than study. And one of my teachers was named Clyde Riddell. My parents sent me the newspaper article that came in the paper, just a Shelton paper, just a few weeks ago, that he had passed away. He was an amazing uh, teacher. He, had, he spoke German fluently. He had been in World War II when they uh, liberated some of the POW camps uh, and uh, death camps. And uh, he, I've told, actually, if, if you're an old-timer, you have heard the story <clears throat> that one time we, we were on a, a school and, and there was, uh, it, it was sort of on a hill and the windows were open. There was no air conditioning. And I, 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 I was a bad boy, and I made a, a paper plane. And I wasn't on the outside row. I was back a ways. But it was really an excellent flight. And I, I flew that plane across part of the room, out the window. And one of the other fellows that was sitting next to the window was so enthralled with my flight, he got up in the middle of class to watch it. And, and Clyde Riddell lays into this guy, and he said, what were you doing? And he says, basically, well, Bob flew this plane out the window. And he said, he can afford to do it. He's got good grades. You can't. He punished him and not me. <laughs> now, i got to tell you, I remember that. That was grace upon grace. But, but Clyde Riddell was a guy who, I, as a teacher, he was fascinating because he was jovial, he was fun-loving, and, and he, you could have the class in an uproar. But, but then when he sensed that things were, as a teacher, were just tipping over the edge and discipline was starting to fall apart, whew, he could turn on this stern side and, and it was just like, whoa, and everybody sits up in their seats and knows this is time to knock it off. I never saw a teacher that could turn it off and turn it on so quickly and decisively as Clyde Riddell. So I thought of him in this text. I mean, isn't that the way you feel? You're reading along and you read the exhortation in verses 19 through 25 and you think, oh, you know, this is really great. Draw near, hold fast, encourage others. And then all of a sudden we get to verse 26 and we're saying, yikes, this is severe. Well, it is. It is. And I think just as it was true with Clyde Riddell that you needed to hear both sides, I think we do as well. I need not tell you this is one of the tough texts in, in Hebrews, perhaps one of the toughest in, in all of the Bible. And, and I have, I've tried to do my due diligence to read the commentaries, and, and I have to say to you, if you don't agree with me, about this, I'm not offended. Uh, and, and frankly, I know in an audience like this, I know that's not going to happen. You know, nobody's going to say, wow, that is the most scintillating 
message I have ever heard. All the other commentaries for hundreds of years, they missed it, but Bob hit it this morning. It's not going to happen. But we're going to take a run at it anyway, because it's here and it's an important text, and I think there are lessons for us to learn. Let's think about the argument of uh, the book of Hebrews for just a minute. In, In chapter 10 you have really the the superior nature of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did in one offering what all of the Old Testament sacrifices, day after day, year after year, and if it went on forever, could not do. He cleansed sin once for all with his one Sacrifice. That sacrifice was voluntary, and of course it was innocent as well. But it put away uh, the necessity of further sacrifice. In other words, when this one call that does all, when this one sacrifice that is effective forever has taken place, then there is no need for any other sacrifice. That's what the writer says in verse 18. There is no need for other sacrifices once there has been the forgiveness of sins that has been achieved through our Lord Jesus. So it is the superior sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that ends all others. And so he goes into the exhortation in verses 19 through 25, and that is to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider how that we might minister to others. And then you come to the, uh, the, the difficult text in verses 26 through 31. Now here we have Clyde Riddell <laughs> laying on us this sober word of warning. I don't think anybody can read this text and have a, and have a smile on their face. These are very sobering words of warning. And we'll, of course, be looking at those pretty carefully this morning. And and then you have, after this word of warning, you have a return in verse 32 through 39 of words of assurance that this does not really characterize. These things about which he is uh, is warning are not really things that characterize these readers. In fact, these people have already gone through deep waters and they have done so successfully and and faithfully. And in terms of the structure of our text then, we really see it in two parts, don't we? We see it as the warning in 26 through 31 and the exhortation and encouragement that comes in verses 32 through 39. Let's take a look then at verses 26 through 31, the words of warning. And, and notice that the, the passage begins with the word for. In other words, what we are reading in 26 through 31 is directly related to what we have been reading in the previous verses. And I think we can see that logic pretty clearly. In other words, if when, when, you, when you follow the argument which the author has been building all the way since chapter 4 in Hebrews, when you, in fact, from chapter 1 if you want to press it back, but when he's really been talking about the priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ that's introduced there in late chapter 4 all the way through, you see that it all comes down to Jesus And in him, there has been one sacrifice that covers everything for all time. It's 
It's all condensed and compressed into this. And aside from what Christ has done, there is no need for anything else in terms of uh, sacrifices and all that the Old Testament ritual and all the works that men could do. There is nothing to add to what he has done. That has a very bright side to it. And that is, when you trust in the work of Christ, the finished work, that's it. In the sense that there is nothing more you must do to be saved. Your sins are forgiven. It's done. It's finished, as Jesus said on the cross. But the downside of that is, if you reject this one supreme work which covers everything then there is no other backup plan. That's that's the downside. If you reject the one alternative that God has given, then there is no backup, there is no alternative, there is no other set of sacrifices, nothing that you can do. And so what would you expect but the doom and the gloom that comes from those who reject Jesus Christ? And so that's what we do when we present the gospel. We tell people the good news. The good news is... God sent his son to bear our sins so that apart from law works, apart from things that we would do to try to please God, we have salvation. But if we reject that salvation, then as Jesus says in John chapter 3, then we are already condemned. And that brings the reality of eternal punishment. So the four links... Uh, the word for links the argument, the negative, as you would, in verses 26 through 31, with the positive of the previous verses. Now he says, if we, and I, and I want to point out how the pronouns change here. Have you noticed? The pronouns in, in verses 26 through 31 are we pronouns. The author includes himself and the other believing members of the community in this word of warning. When he gets to verse 32, he changes to the word you until the last verse, verse 39. And then he says again, we are not those who are among those who shrink back, uh, but those among those who persevere. So it is interesting to me, and, and I have to say that that word we is a huge stumbling block for me in terms of looking at this warning as addressed to people who are not believers. I mean, why would he... I would have said, if I were the author and I were speaking to those in the group who had heard the gospel and associated with the church and whatever, I would have said you, but I would have excluded myself and other believers. But he says we. So that gives me difficulties in looking at this text and saying that somehow it's focusing only on the unbelieving segment rather than on the, the uh, believing segment. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Now, when you think about the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrifices, you remember that there were sacrifices that could be offered for inadvertent, but not high-handed, depending on the translation, or willful sins. So there are unintentional sins and there are intentional sins. Now, I've I've told you before that my struggle is when I sin, (laughs) I'm not sure which bin to put it in. I mean, I, I just, my life is not that neat and tidy to where I can say, well, this one, this is definitely a willful sin and this one over here is unintentional. I, I, there's a whole lot of willfulness in just about 
all of my sin. And, and, and so I have trouble segregating it unless you think of it this way. Suppose that willful sin is done, and it fits this definition, by the way, that he gives to us. It is willful, deliberate, and persistent. Is that not what he says? If we keep on sinning, and the word deliberately is cast up to the front of the sentence, which is underscoring, we, we determine we're going to do that. One of my grandsons the other day was sitting at the, at the counter eating and, and he was about to do something and I gave him the grandfatherly evil eye. And he looked me right back in the eye and did what he knew was wrong. And you're saying, you know, as a parent, that's what you got to decide with kids. Is this one of those willful things that I really got to, you know, just get on with it and get after it? Or is this one of those childlike, inadvertent things where I probably shrugged my shoulders? This was willful. Well, this sin, it seems to me that he's talking about here. It isn't just one act. It isn't something in, 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 that some Armenian type people would look at and say, well, I, I didn't do this or I did this and so I must have lost my salvation. This seems to be a way of life, a mindset, a committed course of action as I read it. Now, Think back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. And suppose that someone were to say, this is really cool. There are all these sacrifices. And so if I sin, you know, okay, so it's going to cost me a lamb. <laughs> you know, we say, you guys, on the lamb. Well, there's a way in which somebody could say, here's the provision of sin. So I'm going to sin. Uh, you know, and you almost say to your, your guys out on the ranch, okay, set aside a few lambs, guys, because <laughs> I'm going down this course. And in a sense, God's got to take care of it. Now, I think we're going to see that played out in the New Testament as well when Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that grace always outruns sin. Wherever there's sin, grace superabounds. And then he raises the question at the beginning of chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it seems to me that there's the possibility for some to say the work of Christ is so great and it covers all sins. Therefore, I'm just going to keep right on down that sinner's path and, and he's got to cover it. That, in my opinion, is deliberate, willful, persistent sin. And it's mighty risky stuff. Uh, so that would help me distinguish it from trying to distinguish the kinds of sins that I do where, frankly, I don't know what bin to put them in, but they're just flat wrong. But the unintentional sins might be sins that I wasn't even aware of because they were unintentional. So look down at verse 29 then when he talks about the nature of the sin that he is talking about here. He says... These people who do this have contempt for the Son of God. Whew. You know, that, that's really in your face. It literally is talking as though you're just putting your foot on it, you're walking on it, you're trampling on it, as though it were something worthless. That person profanes the blood of the covenant. That is, this precious blood and the work that Christ has done that was innocent blood shed for the sins of the world that you basically say unclean, common, just like anything else. That's, that's, a, that's a horrible way in which to look at 
the, the sacrificial blood of our Lord Jesus. And it says it, it insults the spirit of grace. That's interesting in the light of Matthew chapter 13, uh, maybe chapter 12, and, and Mark chapter 3. Remember the unpardonable sin where you can blaspheme against the Lord Jesus, but you can't blaspheme against the spirit? And in that instance, what he's saying is it's the spirit who gives life. The spirit is, so to speak, the one rope that would be hung down if you were in the bottom of a well. And when you burn that rope, folks, you just burn the one means by which God would draw you to himself. And so our Lord goes on and says, you will not ever believe. And he begins to speak in parables to literally conceal the truth from those who had, who had drawn the conclusion the work that Jesus does is supernatural, but it's the work of the devil. Well, the work of the Spirit is to bring glory to Christ. It is to exalt Christ. And so if we say of Christ, in effect, that we have contempt for him and contempt for his blood, and the Spirit's ministry is to exalt him, I think you could safely say we've insulted the Spirit because that is his, uh, or at least a significant part of his ministry. Well, look at the, uh, at the consequences of, of this kind of sin. He says that there is fiery fury on God's enemies. Now, there's a number of Old Testament texts that are, that are cited, and, and, and I think we would all agree... Uh, those who would say this is the judgment that comes upon believers who have, who have uh, willfully sinned but will not lose their eternal salvation, or if it's upon those who are, who are unbelievers and facing the wrath of God. I think we'd all agree this is frightening judgment. It is a fearful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the way he's going to end it. This kind of judgment, nobody wants to come to terms with in terms of being its recipient. The judgment, he says, is worse than the death that one would have under the law. Now, if you look at the context where that's spoken, this, the context is going out and serving other gods, serving and worshiping idols. And what he says is that that person has rejected as it were, the person, the work of God and the law of God and his system, and he is cut off from his people and he dies. What our author is saying is, if that's how serious it was for one to spurn the old covenant, then how much greater is the punishment? So, you know, death is, is, is as it were, uh, in the Old Testament sense, that was, you know, that was as bad as it got. He's saying it's worse. It's worse. So in my mind, that may speak more uh, of something more than temporal judgment, and it may well be speaking of that future judgment that comes upon those who are the enemies of God, which is the context of a number of these texts. So God's vengeance and judgment upon his people, and I, I highlighted there for you not only Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36, but verse 5, where he basically says, these, are, these people are so sinful, they're not my people anymore. And, and so I think we have to come to terms with that. But the bottom line is, those who reject the offer, who fail to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider, to encourage one another, those who reject the supreme offer of grace in the person of Jesus Christ, 
this is this is what lays down the road for those who reject Christ. It is a frightening, frightening uh, thing, I think, indeed. Now come the words of encouragement. Isn't it interesting that now we switch to the word you because he is speaking specifically. Now it's interesting, especially in the light of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, where he's going to have the hall of faith and, and almost without exception, he is going to be talking about those people in Old Testament times who lived by faith in the midst of adversity and made the hard choices to persevere uh, in their faith. Here he does not turn back to other people and say, you should be like them. He turns them to their own past and says, look at the way you were. Look at the past. And we've spoken about this before, but it's obvious while we may not be able to identify the specific circumstances of their adversity, we know that they underwent significant persecution, significant adversity, and they remained faithful and they endured through it. So in a sense, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to these people is, do in the future what you have already done in the past. Look to what God has done for you. He brought you through that. He will bring you through this. Or in a, in a very common way in Scripture, he's saying you may trust God in the future because of what you've seen him do in the past. And so he turns back to, to what it is uh, that, that has happened. By the way, you'll notice in, in, uh, verse, uh, in, in the, this verse it says, after you were enlightened... And, and that is the same word that is used back in chapter 6. And, and I find here it surely is talking about believers. Would you not agree? When he's talking about being enlightened, he's talking about those who have come to faith and who have lived out their faith in the midst of adversity. Speaking to Christians here, well, that's the same word that's used back in chapter 6 after they have been enlightened and so on, which makes it a little difficult for me to say those people weren't believers. At least it raises the question. So the nature of that earlier persecution, which they successfully endured, it was personal abuse, but it was public. I think that's a very, very critical element in this whole section. They are exposed to public humiliation. We, we, I'm going to get back to this whole thing about secret Christians and silent Christians. But in a world which is, is tolerant of, of, of Christianity and perhaps other religions, you don't stick out like a sore thumb. In a world in which being a Christian is against the law, you can't really, you don't have the option of being a silent Christian. In a sense, you, you either renounce or, or you embrace and you stick out one way or the other. Uh, and, and so it seems to me what he's saying is, you have been made a public object of criticism and persecution, uh, and, and that's part of what comes with identifying with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, also, you have shared in the sufferings of others. Now, one of my pet peeves when it talks about showing sympathy to the prisoners and having your property confiscated one of my pet peeves is when in jail ministry, and by the way, Victory in Jesus, number one jail song of all time. I can't remember a prison I've been in 
You know I've been in many and probably should have been in more. But in in almost every prison, if you call out, you know, one a song, victory in Jesus, that's it. But this is not just talking about going to prisons uh, and visiting uh, prisoners in some general sense. This is saying when Christians are outlawed, then to identify with a person who is a believer, to go visit them in prison basically is to say, I'm with him. And that puts you at risk. That, that's the point that the author's making here. I'm not saying we shouldn't go into prisons and, and pro- proclaim the gospel to prisoners, but, but I would say be careful about the text you use. Because here, and I think when Jesus speaks in Matthew, he's talking about your willingness to identify with other believers. By the way, when your property is confiscated and people start taking away everything you have, that's the point, again, at which if if you're going to be cared for, it's going to be by the Christian community. It's not going to be, you know, by the by the unbelieving community. They're taking your goods away. It's the Christian community that comes alongside with the resources to sustain you. So that's what their persecution looked like. Personal, public Humiliation and the uh, the loss of of property because you have identified yourself with those who are in distress. I love this uh, when he talks about the means of the or the basis of their perseverance. He basically says the reason why you're willing to let your property go is because you know that's not where your riches are anyway. Remember Jesus said, "Lay up treasures in heaven." This stuff down here is going to burn anyway. It's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be ashes. So if you lose it, what does it matter? I almost said when the offering plate was going to be passed, I almost said putting money in the offering, especially when, it, when you're in difficult times, is just rehearsal for giving up your goods for the sake of Christ, isn't it? If we have a lifestyle of saying, it's, it, it, this belongs to the Lord. It's not really mine. And I'm looking for true riches to be in heaven. Then when we put money in the offering plate, we're basically saying, I'll give it to the Lord. But there may come a time when somebody's going to come along and say, no, you're going to give it to me. Well, you can either say, well, this is difficult. Do I become a secret Christian because of what I lose? Or you say, hmm, I got a lifestyle. Giving it back. Doesn't matter. My reward's in heaven. That is sure. And I, I tossed in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. But remember where he talks about the salvation that is secure and safe in heaven that's been reserved for you, that's being kept, and you're being kept down here for it? That's what he's talking about. You know where your treasure is, and you know that it is safe and it is secure. So the exhortations follow then in verses 35 uh, through 39. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In other words, this is really about faith. Faith is the basis of endurance. Don't cast aside your confidence. Why would people give up, as it were, and, and give up their confidence when they've already seen the hand of God in their life? I'm not sure I can answer that, but, but one of the possibilities is they're just weary. You know, in one sense, you could look at this and you can look at the past and say, look at this persecution, look at how you faced it, look how God has brought you through it. But there is another way of viewing that. Oh, no. Here we go again. I've already been there once. I just don't know if I have the energy to face it again. 
That seems to be what the author is addressing. Don't throw away your confidence. God will be with you then as he has been in the past. He says, you need endurance to do God's will and to receive his promised blessings. That's what it's all about. It's about suffering adversity in this life and waiting for God's blessing in the next. Not that there may not be blessings in this life, but the ultimate blessings come in the future. That's one of the problems with some forms of evangelicalism is that this triumphalism that says you're going to have it all now. That's not the way the Bible presents it. You know, that you're going to be prosperous and happy and healthy and whatever. Man, that wouldn't sell. I I can imagine. (laughs) You ever think about if you took today's Christian bookstore and you put it back at certain periods of time, they'd go broke. I mean, can you imagine these Hebrew believers having these books about health and wealth and all this stuff? They said, forget that. It doesn't work. It's going to get tough. This is the kind of teaching that that secures people because they know what's coming and they know it's worth it and they know who's held their hand in, in the midst of all of that. That's what he's saying. You need endurance. And he says it won't be long. It won't be long. He's coming again. And what I see here is it's interesting because when you are talking about faith, you're talking about faith past and you're talking about faith future in the sense that you can look at when you are saved, you are looking at the past at what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. But as Hebrews makes clear, when he ascended, he was seated at the right hand of the Father and he sits there until the Father puts his enemies under his feet like a footstool. So the future hope is Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming to establish his kingdom. He is coming to punish those who were his enemies, and he is coming to reward those who were his faithful people. So there is not only faith in what Christ has done. There is surely that. There is faith that based upon who he is and what he has done, he will do what he has promised in the future. So you must endure by faith. It won't be long. And then I like that last verse where now he comes back to the we. He says, look who we're among. And, and I just find that word among interesting because all the way from verses 19 down through, you see this collective element of the church. You are not just individually saved and have an individual walk and relationship You are brought into the church as a part of that body. And so he says, as we talked about last week, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and figure out ways to be of ministry to one another. When you read these verses then of their ministry in the past, isn't that what they were doing? By the way, it doesn't take a whole lot of of a mental horsepower to figure it out. Here is your next door neighbor who has been sitting with you in Bible study in your home, they're hauled off because they're believers. Their home has been confiscated. Their family's without food. It doesn't take an Einstein to figure out what you ought to do to encourage them to love and good deeds. And that's what they did. So he says, we are not among those who shrink back, but we are among those who stand fast. So he's saying, look around, look around. Find encouragement and strength and courage 
from your fellow believers. They're in this with you, and they're holding fast uh, as well. Okay, let's talk about how I resolve the tensions in the text. In other words, how do I deal with these problems? One of the things I found in some of the commentaries is it was like they fought the battle in chapter 6, and they just kind of slipped by it in chapter 10. they just like, well, we already talked about that. Let's, let's not go there again. And believe me, I understand why they would say that. But there are tensions, and I guess my biggest tension is, why is the author... It seems to me that when I look at the text, I have to say, he is addressing believers. I, 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 just, I just can't find it in myself to say, these are not really believers. They're close, but not close enough. I just I can't see it. The other side of it is, when I look at the judgment that is there, I say, you know, I, I know there is earthly temporal judgment, but wow, that feels hellish to me. And, and so how do I deal with the fact that you're holding out this, this judgment here, but you're talking to believers? How do we put those together? That's the issue, I guess, that I seek to have to struggle with. Let me say this. The, the, other, the, the two major views of interpretation, one, these are almost Christians, but not quite. That's, that's not very good analysis in their terms, but... It, it's they they're close but not not they haven't gotten that near <laughs> and 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 so you say these are people that have associated themselves with a the christian community they've heard the gospel but they've just never quite crossed that line i believe there are people like that i believe there are people like that i'm just not sure that the text is talking about those people but i believe there are people like that and so i can understand people who would come to this text and say well that's what it is likewise I believe that there are Christians who willfully go their, their way, who, if you want to say, prodigal Christians for a period of time, uh, and that God may bring serious discipline into their lives. I see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it sounds like that person who is immoral is going to suffer the discipline of God, perhaps to death, that their spirit might be saved. So I believe there are Christians who go uh, their own way and, and experience severe discipline. But I'm not absolutely certain that this text is teaching that either, even though I believe that could be the case for some people. So how do I resolve the tension? And, and I would say this. Well, one of the things that we learn is when you look at this text, the worth of our Lord in his person and his work is measured, I think, one, in terms of the positive benefits that it produces. But it's also measured by the negative things that result from its rejection. Would that not be true? In other words, you've got sort of the carrot and the stick in a way, but it's sort of saying, if you follow the exhortation of 19 through 25, look at these things that will come. But it's also saying, if you don't, then look down the trail, look down the road at where the path of willful disobedience leads. And, and, and you have to say, whoa, when you put those two together, that's kind of motivating, it, it seems to me. It isn't all plus, it isn't all minus, but a little of each. I would say, too, why then is it speaking to believers about judgment on the lost? Why would you talk to believers here 
about judgment that falls on the lost. And I thought about uh, some texts. We can learn, or, or I should say, we should learn from the experience of other people. In other words, if we realize that here is a person who has rejected the sacrifice of Christ, here is their eternal doom, then it does several things for me. One, I say to myself, that but for the grace of God was me. That's what I deserve. That produces gratitude in me. And I say, that's where that path leads. I don't really think that's a very good path to be on. If you're on the freeway and you're going the opposite direction that you ought to be, you know, you say to yourself, maybe I'm on the wrong road. Maybe I ought to turn around and go that away. Proverbs says, strike the scoffer, who, by the way, from Proverbs, isn't going to learn. Strike the scoffer and the simple will learn. Well, let's just say that we're simple for a minute because I can identify with that. And, and, and what I see is Christians ought to learn from the way God deals with unbelievers. So it's not inappropriate to, to call to our attention ta- a text in which God is dealing with unbelievers and saying, look at this. That isn't to say necessarily that's what's going to happen to you. It's saying if it happens to them, that's a bad path. So bottom line is, I I look at this kind of uh, through the eyes of Romans chapter 6, where the same basic issue is there. Grace always outruns sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he basically says, remember what happened? When you were baptized, you were, you were giving outward testimony to what had already happened in your spiritual baptism. You were identified with Christ. You died with him to sin. You were buried and you were raised to him, uh, in him to newness of life. How then can you who have died to sin continue to live in sin, he says. And then when he goes on in chapter uh, 6, in the last half of chapter 6, basically he says, look at where sin goes. For the wages of sin is death. And he's he's basically saying, not if you get on this this trail, you're going to hell. But he's saying, that's where the trail leads. Now, I believe that God will not let us reach the end of that trail. But I'm saying that when you look at, at, at at, at, at the faith as in terms of a path, there's one path. And when you come to the death and the work of Jesus Christ, you either accept it and move on, or you reject it. And all the author's doing is saying, just look at where these things lead. Rejection leads to judgment. Acceptance leads to God's grace and peace and work in your life. Well, that ought to be motivation, I think, to follow him. Now, I've got some conclusions, and I'm going to leave those on paper. And I, I, I confess, this is not on your PowerPoint, so don't even look. It's not on your paper. But I decided to add this little note. How do you handle the hard text? There are lots of applications that come out of this text that that apply to us that we would all generally agree upon. And I guess I want to say, here's the one that I think I'm looking at most. It is interesting to me that in this teaching in Hebrews, the one possibility that is never entertained is the, uh, is the possibility of a second class or carnal Christian. Now, I have the feeling that, that some of you may have the same basic sinful inclinations in your heart, and that is to say, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to heaven. I've even had it told to me. 
I know what I do is not going to put me on the 50-yard line, but I'm in the Colosseum. I don't care. So I'm going to go on this way. And, and there's a way in which we can content ourselves with being in the Christian community, with getting to heaven, but somehow I'm not going to do those extraordinary measures that take me down this path of growth. But what I want to say to you is this. When difficult times of persecution come, you won't have the luxury. You won't have the luxury of second-class citizenship in heaven, in my opinion. Your culture is going to say, are you a Christian? And this has happened. Do you believe in Jesus Christ or will you renounce him? You're forced with a choice and you say, couldn't I just be a carnal Christian? <laughs> you know, kind of a, a silent Christian. My, my works, my life will speak for me. It won't happen. It won't happen. And, and I guess what I would say from Hebrews is, we live, when we come to this text, we come with a certain set of assumptions. And basically, we come assuming culture is going to accept us, assuming that we're going to live a fairly comfortable life, which most of us have been doing, and that it's not going to get tough. But I want to tell you, tell you that underlying this text is the assumption that those who follow Jesus suffer. Jesus said it in John, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul said it in Second Timothy all those who would live godly lives will suffer persecution. Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he said, Don't be surprised that your suffering is coming upon you as though something strange is happening. For us, we would be surprised. Suffering is a normal part of life, and, and we better brace up. And Christians need to be public Christians. So I'm going to get on my soapbox about baptism for one minute. And that is, it starts with baptism. It starts with baptism, and, and one of my agonies, and I, I don't really know how to solve it, so I'm, I'm not grousing, but when we have baptisms here, and sometimes I will too, we have a bunch of people who, it's like we're the cheering squad. Yeah, yeah, you know, for everybody that gets baptized, and we even clap for them. Baptism in New Testament times basically said, I'm identifying myself with Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and let me tell you, folks, there was no applause people knew that when they got baptized, that was the time at which their families would disown them, where in which some their families would feel committed to take their lives. It was serious business. And, and all I'm saying is baptism is the initial act and it sets the stage. What it says is I'm living in a world hostile to Jesus Christ and I'm identifying with him and I understand where that leads. And, and, and then when you get to Hebrews chapter 10, you understand being a Christian is a public thing. And we're going to be placed, I think, in positions where we have to publicly opt in or opt out. Okay, now here are my extraneous comments. How do you handle a hard text? One, I don't let hard texts overturn what a multitude of clear texts teaches me. I may not, I may not know necessarily. I may not have the perfect explanation and I haven't read one yet for, for these texts in, in Hebrews. But I gotta tell you one thing. What I'm not gonna do is say, oh, well, Christians can lose their salvation. There's just too many texts that make it clear. That isn't going to happen. So I let the clear text carry me. Two, I under, I realize that I'm under God's word, not over it. I don't pronounce upon God's word, and I don't have full control of it. 
And so what I realize is, hey, do I expect to have the absolute truth on every text that I teach? No way. I don't. It's just the reality of it. God's Word is God's Word, and He's bigger than I am, and His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so I just got to come to terms with the fact I don't know it and I don't control it. But it does control me, and I need to obey it. I have all eternity to learn. <laughs> you know, hey, folks, we've got lots of questions. You're going to leave today with lots of questions, but we've got all eternity to ask those questions, and, and we'll know. We'll know. We'll understand about that. Here's the last one that struck me, kind of a hee-haw. This text allows me to identify with the Hebrew readers. I go back in my mind's eye to Hebrews chapter 5. The writer has been saying, I wanted to talk to you about Melchizedek and his priest and the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek because that is a very important truth. And would you not agree with me it is? Was the writer not correct to press on? Was the writer not right to say, well, this is too hard for you. I see your eyes are glazing over, so I'll just, I'll just leave that one. No. The atoning work of Jesus Christ is the core and the guts of our faith and our action. He couldn't let us leave it alone. And that's why he says, and I'm pressing on, because you need to hear it. Well, all of a sudden, I look at this text and I say, you know, I was looking down my nose at those people in chapter 5 saying, why can't they get this Melchizedek stuff? And God puts me over in chapter 10 and says, why can't you get this judgment stuff? And I say to myself, oops, <laughs> I guess I'm slow of learning. I guess I'm sluggish in mind. And what that tells me is the very exhortations that the, re the, the author gives to the recipients of this text to toughen up to study up, to get going, to understand it. Those are exhortations to me because I've got texts where I'm just as glassy-eyed as they are. I mean, doesn't that say something to us? We better not get huffy and proud and look down our nose at those people. There are texts that just cause us difficulty. But they're important texts, and we need to wrestle with them and grow. They ought to make us better students. Not throwing our hands up saying, who can know? We need to know. That's why he put it there. And he put it there at the conclusion of the book. Well, next week, this is leading up to faith. Next week, we get to chapter 11. We can all breathe a sigh of relief and say, whew, we're past chapter 10. Father, thank you for this text. We know it's difficult. We know many good people have agonized with it, struggled to teach it. We know that we still walk away with questions and, and yet help us, Father, to realize that says more about us than it does about you in some ways. We need to be better students. We need to discipline ourselves to study your word and to ask the hard questions and in some cases to wait for eternity for the answers. But help us to look to your word and to desire to obey it. Help us, Father, to... to uh, to not only follow the exhortations of this text, but also follow its warnings, how, how serious it is to reject and to rebel against you. Help us to be obedient. Help us not to settle for second-class citizenship. 
Help us to stand firm and fast in a society which is rapidly moving to the place where it will oppose us openly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.